Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. My guest today is Massimo Bacchus, Chief Coaching Officer at Massimo Bacchus Leadership. Massimo is a master facilitator, speaker, and leadership coach. He's helped leaders uncover who they are, who they want to be, and how to transform old habits that are holding them back. He has coached and consulted with startups to Fortune 500 companies, and he's even won awards as a documentary filmmaker. Now it's even led up to him writing a book that I know all of us will enjoy. Welcome, Massimo. Hey, thank you for having me, Paul. It's just great to have you on on the show. I, I've had the pleasure of uh, getting to know you over the last couple of months and hearing about your your story uh, and uh, your own tra- personal transformation. But tell us, you know, as a leadership coach, uh, what what is your approach? Uh, day. I know you've kind of grown into that role. You left working for a, a larger consulting company. You've gone off on your own. But what have you deemed to be the most special about your approach to leadership coaching? So I look at uh, all of my clients and all, all um, leaders, for that matter, simply as humans. I mean, that's where we, we start. That's the, that's the one thing that we all have in common is this, this sh- the shared humanity. And from that place, I recognize that while we can develop technical expertise and great leadership titles and prominence and and authority, we're still human at the end of the day. And that our humanness, our our fears, our inadequacies of imposter syndrome, our history can get in the way of our ability to be even more effective and to create organizations where people can flourish and live their purpose. And so I work with my clients to help them figure out if there is something getting in their way that's limiting their impact as a leader, that's slowing them down towards the cause that they are rallied behind. We get to the core of what that is and make some meaningful progress to either move it out of the way or change their relationship with it. It seems like a a great approach. I love the human side of it, but how does that square with what you typically think about with leadership coaching and leadership capabilities. How do you, especially maybe in a new engagement, get people to open up and be genuine where you can get to that old habit that you can then work to transform? That's a great question, Paul. And I'm sure anyone who's listening that's a coach themselves might you know, frown upon this approach. But I find that when asking someone to demonstrate vulnerability or um, let their guard down, you know, remove the armor, so to speak, that you kind of have to show them what that looks like first. And so I do that with uh, the clients that I work with, both in, you know, large leadership forums, as well as one-on-one coaching to show them what that looks like. I think people need to have a model of what it means to be vulnerable, not weak, uh, not oversharing, not having boundaries, but to, again, just demonstrate that, we're still human, even though we're doing great things, even though we're um, creating change in the world, you know, we're still just individuals uh, trying to get through the day. And I think that modeling that and sharing my own kind of humanity and vulnerability helps to build trust and relationship. Um, it also, in a, in a kind of a paradoxical way, I 
I believe that it, it builds credibility because I can share my humanity and my vulnerability, but I can also share my expertise and, and my success and um, demonstrate that they can, not only can they coexist, but that you can thrive as a result of honoring, you know, both parts of yourself. Well, you went from leading a consulting department for a large organization for many years. And so it's one thing to go into all these engagements and tell people how they can do it. But then more recently, you've gone off on your own. And now you find yourself being a true practitioner in the mix. How have you seen that transition go? You know, the biggest shift for me was a identity shift that uh, happens when you're inside of an organization, whatever that organization might be, whatever your role is, you end up creating an identity in there that is based on um, the feedback and the accolades, the recognition, the, you know, the role that you hold, the authority that you hold. Um, and being an entrepreneur now and starting my own practice and, and building a business this way is um, there was an opportunity to check my identity and think about what things I wanted to take from my previous parts of my career and what parts I wanted to, to redefine um, and what felt most authentic to me. I think what I found is that a lot of it was the same. Um, but there's definitely an identity shift that goes into being a, a practitioner and not, you know, having the blue badge of being a, an internal employee. Yeah, it's, it's quite a change. I know you're still going through it and enjoying it quite a lot. Uh, I, I want to take you back and see where all these uh, kind of human sensibilities came from. It's got to really come from your own story, which, like you said, you've used to create trust in the environments that you're in so that when you engage with people, that trust is used to help them create their own vulnerabilities. But let's talk about where this came from. Tell me about your childhood, early influences growing up. You know, I, I think for me, the, the fundamental um, influence in my life has been um, growing up and living with dyslexia. And there's some amazing work that's happening in the field of dyslexia research and advocacy uh, upon dyslexia. There's an organization called Made by Dyslexia that is uh, founded by Richard Branson, uh, who I think is a, a famous, you know, dyslexic. And it's different today than it was uh, when I was growing up. And, you know, being in school in the, you know, in the 80s, when I was in grade school, it was something where there were still special ed classes. And, you, you know, you were treated as an other student. And I just remember going to school and feeling like it was, a, you know, a battleground that every day I was fighting just to keep up or make sense of, you know, the world around me. But I never really felt like I knew where we were going or where we had just come from. And it was very disorienting and had an impact on my confidence and self-esteem, uh, sense of self-worth, sense of community and how to fit in with, with other kids and other students. And while all of this was my experience, I was also very fortunate to have, you know, supporting, you know, loving parents and a lot of support around me, a lot of, you know, blessings in that regard. But that that challenge uh, both motivated me and put a chip on my shoulder that I, I think drove the motivation to figure out, I got I to gotta solve this puzzle. I need to find my place in the world. And I was relentless with that. I, I, I didn't accept anything that felt like complacency or didn't feel really authentic with what I was doing. I think I'm in a position today to like actually say with, you know, 
all sincerity that I love what I do and I'm doing exactly what I, you know, what I should be doing with my life. Like I'm living my life's purpose, but that came with a lot of false starts that came with a lot of um, trying on different hats and, and that they didn't fit. It came with a lot of grit and perseverance to continue to push forward with kind of a blind faith that there is, there has to be something out there like that, that all of this challenge and, and um, friction that I, you know, experienced throughout my life was going to lead to something that it would be worth something uh, at some point in my life. Well, I, I want to dig into some of those uh, challenges along the way, those false starts, so to speak. And um, I want to share this uh, afterwards with my 20-year-old daughter who's in college and keeps telling me that all friends know exactly what they want to do and what their purpose is. And, and I try to convince her that that's not the case and, and it try to take the pressure off, but uh, I don't think I'm convincing her. So um, share, share some examples of uh, these false starts along the way. Well, so I went to um, college right after high school, not because I wanted to. I mean, again, my experience at school up to that point had not been pleasant by any means, but I did it because it was what everyone else in my you know, school and community was doing. It was the right thing to do. I wanted to, didn't want to let my parents down. And um, halfway through my sophomore year, I ended up dropping out because I, I wasn't being authentic. I was not ready to be there. I, I wasn't able to focus. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, it was, I was not taking advantage of all the opportunities that were presented to me by being in, in school. And I was at the university of San Francisco at the time. And, uh, I moved back home and my, that was not something that I wanted to do. I was, you know, 19 years old, moving back home with my parents as a college <laughs> dropout, a very humbling time in my life. And my parents said, you can live here, but you're going to need to find work or go back to school. And I wasn't ready to go back to school. I didn't, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And as a college dropout, employment is limited. And I got a job doing door-to-door -door sales for a company that, you know, in hindsight was basically a, a pyramid scheme. And, uh, but they had this really robust sales training and it was door-to-door -door sales in, in residential areas and door-to-door -door sales within uh, business settings as well. And I did that for 12 months exactly. And it taught me so much about myself, about my strengths that I had never realized before. Um, and I was really good at it. It was something that came very naturally to me. And I built really successful sales teams and, you know, was one of the top performers in, in the region and in the state. And I hadn't really done anything prior to that in my life where I had found success playing to my natural skills to, you know, just being me because academia had not provided that yet at, at that point. And that built a tremendous amount of confidence in me, you know, dealing with the number of rejections when you're working in sales, um, dealing with different types of people and different personalities and appealing to, to their interests and their values and getting to know what matters most to them, building the sales teams and learning about, you know, what is each person's kind of unique approach and superpower when it comes to being able to sell for, for many people the idea of being in sales just kind of feels uh, like gross and they, they didn't want to do that. And so my ability to, to show people that you can sell things without being salesy uh, and then it's about building relationships and building trust. And so that was a, a, a very happy accident, Paul, to do that for the 12 months and, and take what lessons I took from it. And that launched me back into school because I had newfound confidence and direction of what I wanted to do. You went full on back to school, right? Lots of degrees. And uh, so 
you uh, you went all in. Well, not exactly. I I in total I went to seven different colleges or universities. Uh, you know, on my way to getting a master's degree in organizational psychology, but. After the door-to-door sales, I did go back to school, but I was also working in commercial real estate at the time. So I kind of had one foot out the door and I wasn't quite sure that maybe I would finish my degree. I thought maybe this commercial real estate thing is something that I could do. And at that time in my kind of young mind, it was all about dollars. I was like, if I can make a Mm -hmm. bunch of money then I can prove people wrong that, you know, that I don't have to get a degree and that I'm, that I'm smart and I'm, you know, that I'm worthy. And what I found is that as I would be working with all of my clients, I would be far more curious about their business and the organizational psychology that was going on in their organizations and their leadership than I was about, you know, where they could get the best rents or, or kind of knowing, you know, the market as well as I should have to, to really grow in, in that industry. And that was the tipping point when I said, all right, I, I need to crack this nut. I didn't know about the field of organizational psychology. I didn't know about leadership development. I didn't know about executive coaching, but I knew that I had an interest in this field of how people organize and how people work together effectively and how people flourish. And it was that broad curiosity that pushed me to fully commit to academia for the first time and changed my entire relationship with being a student and being a learner. Um, and it was the first time I was able to really take advantage of, you know, the abundance of opportunities that are present when you're, you know, in a great institution. I ended up going back to school at Seattle University and, and completing my undergraduate work there. So uh, how did you get into really launching your career after after getting the uh, your master's? My first job after uh, completing my undergraduate degree was with a, a boutique consulting firm that... Um, did a selection and assessment and leadership development for private equity and venture capital. Uh, essentially, you look at investing in a, a company as a venture capital firm, we would assess the executive team and say, okay, here's some development areas for these people. Or if this founder is you know, really the source of all the intellectual property in the business, what's the risk associated with that? And how do you make sure that the founder can move from being a founder to a successful CEO? Or how can they transition and help come up with those plans? And that was my first taste of, of really being in the field and around other PhDs in um, industrial organizational psychology and just being really immersed in the research. And that was just before 2008. And then as the kind of the market collapsed, I saw that as a great opportunity to go to grad school. And so that's when I pivoted to, to Claremont Graduate University to get my master's degree. And um and I was all in. I mean, I, truly like a kid in a candy store. I couldn't couldn't get enough of it. And then you ended up in a, a larger consulting organization. After grad school, I went to Accenture and worked in their talent organizational performance practice. And that was, you know, very eye-opening. It was the complete other end of the spectrum from being in a boutique firm. You know, they're extremely talented in building these massive workforces that tackle really complex problems and and being a part of that was, um, it was it was thrilling. It was exciting. It was challenging. It was also very clear to me that I liked smaller organizations or places where I could kind of put my unique touch on something, and that uh, I wasn't necessarily long for a for a career in you know one of the the big uh, the really big consulting businesses. Yeah, uh, this whole idea of academia and how 
it fits within the business setting? You know, how challenging, if any, along the way has that been where uh, leaders sometimes in their growing, their growth, if they haven't come through academia, may not have the patience or scoff or say, just tell me what to do. How do you blend the science part of it to to gain that trust with uh, people who haven't grown up in the academic world? Yeah. When I finished my master's degree, I, um, and I tell this story to, a, you know, people that are students now that I mentor that are kind of launching their careers earlier in their careers. Um, during my interview uh, with Accenture, the hiring manager said something akin to, I don't care about all the theories or all the research that you've done. I just want to know, can you perform, you know, in practice? Like, can you actually apply what you've learned? None of this academic research matters to me. And basically what he was saying is, you know, don't, don't bore me with those details. Can you actually convert that into value? And that was a very humbling thing because coming into that, I was quite proud of the hard work and the research that I've done and all of that. And I realized that it didn't matter to people outside of academia. They didn't, they didn't care as much. And I had just spent time in an academic institution where everyone prided themselves on creating new knowledge and doing research and you know, knowing the latest and greatest of research that's being done. And I took that as, um, as a challenge, as an opportunity to say, how can I continue to stay current with research and understand what value is created by the, by the new knowledge and new understanding that we have around organizations and how people can work together and collaborate and lead and, and continue to evolve. But how can I translate that into a way that is applicable for people and, and that isn't full of you know, citations and, and the academic rigor that, that makes it a bit dry to even read. And it is bridging the gap between the research that's being done and the stories of what it looks like in application where I, I see a tremendous amount of opportunity. And so I continue to do um, constant research and learning around what's, what's being done in the, the field of psychology, but I don't bring those citations as much as what is the thought leadership that comes from that? And what are the stories of how it's being applied or how it could be applied within an organization? And I believe that it's in those stories that people can make meaning of it and it's approachable. It's something that they can envision in their organizations or take into practice, you know, immediately. Well, and they, they can identify with it. That's what's, yeah. uh, so bridging that gap is, is, uh, cause I would be, Personally, as I grew up in my own leadership journey, I would probably be cynical about some of that and some of those citations and some of that research. And But if you can break it down that way through storytelling, I think the wonderful approach to get people to identify. Let's take a quick break. As a business owner, are you continually searching for less stress, more time freedom, and increased profits? Prosper for Business by Mackey might be the solution you've been looking for. Prosper for Business is both an executive coaching program and fractional CFO service designed to deliver exceptional results through increased education, visibility, and accountability. Prosper for Business graduate Jude Hemmen, CEO of Furlong Building Enterprises, said, The decision to work with Mackey was a life changer. They truly care about our success and give us the tools to do so. Working with the Mackey team also helped Julie Bach, owner of the Bach Group, see things in the business she hadn't seen before that led her to the business being more efficient, productive, and profitable. 
Does Prosper for Business sound like the right next step for your business? Visit MackeyAdvisors.com slash smallgiants. That's M-A-C-K-E-Y Advisors.com slash smallgiants to learn more. And now back to the podcast. Now, sometime along the way, Massimo, you were uh, running a global leadership development team, uh, working with Fortune 500 companies, and and you feel like you had a moment where you failed as a leader. Talk talk about that. Yeah, I mean, it was a a, a time of hypocrisy in my in my career. I was responsible for leading a team that was focused on leadership development for. Um, all the consultants and the leaders of this organization that were going out in the field and working with Fortune 500 companies. So it was an internal program. And in the delivery of that work and, and the effectiveness of what my team delivered, highly successful and truly transformative for, for the leaders that these programs you know, impacted, for the, the people that were part of these programs. But I myself, as a leader of my team, failed miserably. I wasn't practicing what I preached. I wasn't applying all of the things that I was, you know, um, coaching and, and uh, facilitating the growth and the other leaders that I was working for. And um, I don't know if I was blinded by hubris or if it was just that I'm human too. And I, I was on my own leadership journey and struggling to move from being a, you know, a, a high impact individual contributor to, to, you know, facilitating the work through a team of others. But I let my team down at times. I became too in love with, you know, my good intent, but didn't realize that your intent means nothing if the impact is is not in alignment. And I got a lot of harsh feedback that that forced me to, you know, take a good look in the mirror and and try and figure out why am I so misaligned here? I'm I'm trying to do good, and yet I'm not. I'm I'm you know eroding trust in relationships as opposed to building it. I'm trying to create space for people to grow, but in, in some, you know, reverse way, I wasn't actually doing that. I wasn't creating a space for people to feel psychologically safe so that they could take chances. And that was just, that was a really hard time. It was very um, humbling and it called into question, you know, am, am I a fraud? Is, is what I'm doing here, am I legit in what I'm doing or, or is this, is this less than, and I'm happy to be able to look back and say, I wasn't a fraud, but I'm human. And, and I had some learning to do. And, and I was able to link it back to my past and realize I was still carrying this chip on my shoulder about being dyslexic and that I had to prove myself. And what that created was um, a leader who was defensive and closed off and, you know, had to assert themselves to be right, as opposed to creating a space for the collective wisdom and an opportunity for other people to share and you know, maybe being wrong or being wrong a lot and allowing the really smart people around me to really thrive. And um, it took some time to figure out what that was and, and get out of my own way so that I could get out of the way of others so they could really do their best work. Maybe there was a little overconfidence too that had built up over time because you had been so successful in your work and, and you had that chip on your shoulder. I, I want to ask if you're willing to share how did you become aware that you were off track? You know, was that feedback from those on your team that you were leading? Were the was that feedback from people you know higher in the organization? But how did you find out? Because I yeah. imagine at that time you may not have had the level of self awareness that you have today. 
I definitely, definitely did not have the level of self-awareness. I received the feedback from 360s directly from my team, from my leadership, you know, really from all kinds of avenues I was, I was receiving it. And I was able to hear it, but I didn't know what to do with it. And that was probably the most frustrating thing is that I thought I understood it. I wanted to change, um, but I couldn't change. I, I, I didn't know where to begin. And this is something that I find with my clients all the time. They, they know what they're doing that's not working, but they don't know how to stop doing it because they don't know what the cause of it is. They don't know what is the limiting belief or the big assumption or the fear that is getting in the way of their ability to change. And for me, I had to kind of go to some extreme uh, lengths to do that. And I went through a program called the Hoffman Process. It's been around for 40, 50 years. Um, and I went through a week-long retreat that was part silent retreat and part kind of, you know, group exercise, really looking at one's history and trying to figure out what are the things from our past that are informing the way that we behave today? And what are those things from our past that are, that are limiting us, that are, that are holding us back from being able to change the things that we want to change. And for me, it was very much, I went into that experience knowing um, I'm, showing up as defensive. I'm not creating a, um, a safe environment for my team. And I don't know how to stop doing that, even though I'm aware that I am. And that process um, was a very, very intense, transformative week, but it, it kind of blew the roof off of it for me. And it allowed me to step way back and draw the line from uh, my ineffective behaviors in the present to the things that I had picked up, you know, throughout my life and pivotal moments in the past and to reframe those and to humble myself and then to choose intentionally to behave differently. What did that ultimately change in you other than what, how it might have changed how you work day to day with your team now being more self-aware and being willing to address that? Did you remain with that company for a while? Did you change careers? Uh, you know, how has that really overall changed your approach uh, to your work? I think it, the initial value that came out of that experience for me was the acknowledgement of what self-compassion is, um, which is based on the amazing work of uh, Dr. Kristen Neff, and that I was lacking it. I didn't have any self-compassion and that all of my uh, behavior was essentially self-protective behavior that I didn't feel like I was enough. I didn't feel like I was adequate uh, or maybe that I was an imposter or you know, that I would be found out again from spending my entire you know, youth in, in institutions where I did feel that way. And then yes, I had success and I had confidence laid on top of that. But underneath that surface of confidence was someone who was being very self-protective and putting you know, armor on top of armor on top of armor. And it takes time to be able to remove all of those layers and still stand in integrity with yourself and recognize I don't have all the answers, uh, but I belong in this conversation and I am enough. And that single concept of self-compassion is something that I've woven into my life on a daily basis. It's impacted my relationship with my family, with my son, with my wife, friends, um, as well as professionally. And there's three main components of self-compassion that I practice on a daily basis. And the first is common humanity. 
And that is recognizing that in any point of suffering or joy or whatever you're experiencing, that that's a shared experience. And especially in roles of leadership, we isolate, we, we put people in other positions because I'm the leader, I need to protect my team. And so I'm othering them. And I'm not recognizing that there are other leaders that are also struggling, that it's really challenging to lead people is a very difficult thing to do. In many respects, it's harder than, you know, leading a PL because you're dealing with all these different personalities and, you know, individual psychologies. The second piece is around mindful awareness. So it's recognizing what is your uh, emotion at any given moment and what is that trying to tell you? So for me to just be able to be mindfully aware of what are the things that would trigger me to be defensive and how can I pause before responding in a defensive way and recognize I don't need any armor, I'm not being threatened here, and I can choose to respond differently. And then the third piece is around self-kindness or just being kind to yourself. And that could be something as simple as, you know, recognizing that you need to take a break or that you're, you know, you're feeling uh, angry or frustrated because you haven't eaten all day or you need to journal or that, um, that you are, you know, feeling overwhelmed in your work and that that's okay as well. But being able to put these three things together has changed the way that I lead my teams now and has certainly fundamentally changed the way that I, that I coach and develop leaders. Not that everyone's going to have the same experience as me, but these tools that have been transformative for me, uh, you know, they apply to everyone. They're, you're, they're ubiquitous in their value. What a great approach. Uh, I love it. It just feels so different than what you normally think about when you're about managing just leadership training or dysfunctional teams. Uh, but it feels like that you have to go pretty deep with people to gain that trust through your own vulnerability. But once uh, you open that up in them, uh, I, I can just see tremendous possibilities. How do you how do you track over time how you can take these people through these transformative moments and then how it ultimately affects their business? So last week I was running a, a workshop. I was kicking off a program that is um, about eight months long and there's three in-person sessions and then there's coaching that goes throughout the program for these leaders. And at the beginning of this, they all had a 360 and they went through some other assessments to get some information to help them with their self-awareness. And then they came up with what is their individual developmental goal that each of them wants to define. And that's based on the feedback and it's based on you know, their priorities and goals within the business and, and their growth as leaders. And underneath whatever that goal is, is going to be some sort of fear or, or um, competing commitment that will violate their ability to make the change. Just as I had this goal myself to not be defensive, and yet I had some competing commitment of being self-protective that prevented me from being able to change. And this all takes time, but you first have to get to the, to the root cause. And so in this session last week, that is, that is the exact thing that we did. There's a process called immunity to change that's based on the work of Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy out of Harvard. And that process helps people understand what is my competing commitment? What is the, what is that self-protective thing that I, if I can't let that go, it will continue to get in my way and my ability to change. Identifying that uh, is a, is deep work. It's a hard process. It can be very scary, 
Um, but we do it in community. We do this in groups. And what happens is that once people get over the initial hurdle of the fear, the discomfort of doing the kind of the hard internal work, there's actually a collective sigh of relief because we're doing this together and everyone sees that, oh my gosh, this person who I work with, who I thought had it all figured out, they also have armor up. They also have these competing commitments um, or fears. And in that um, moment, we create common humanity. We create connection that says, yeah, we all have things that we're working on. This isn't to take away from the great people that we are, but it's to recognize that in order for us to continue to grow, we have to look at our shadow side. We have to look at the things that we're doing that are getting in our way. How we measure this over time, Paul, is through deliberate practice every week and connecting on a, on a weekly, bi-weekly basis with people to continue to check in, continue to coach, um, and find opportunities for little experiments, little kind of micro opportunities to test this hypothesis of how can I lead differently when I um, stand in my own integrity and I take the armor off and I allow, I allow myself to lead with vulnerability and it becomes a flywheel effect because as people practice this, they see the value that's generated by uh, the change in relationships, the change in their, the speed of trust. And we measure the success based on the behavior change. And as the people around the leaders that I work with say, I see a change in you, that's the data that we look for to know that the change is actually occurring. But it has to come from the people that work around you saying, I see you showing up differently. I see you leading differently. And I value it and providing specific feedback around what are they seeing as a positive change and what's the positive impact of it. Yeah, and when they get that feedback from their own teams about how they're showing up differently, it just feels so good. And that, yeah. like you said, that encourages them to just want to do it more. Um, uh, it, wonderful uh, approach. At what point did you decide, hey, I'm ready to go put out my own shingle? You know, COVID was a strange, not that it's done, but um, especially in the early you know, days of COVID, it was a very strange time for all of us. And it put our life in a different perspective. You know, all of us were, were shifted, not by choice, but to look at our lives from a different perspective. And for me, being inside of an organization that um, was also reacting to the, the pandemic, uh, there was a lot of uncertainty around what the future would look like there. And I didn't know where I fit into it. it, it I, I think that the perspective shift for me was that maybe I don't belong in this environment anymore. And maybe it's time to do something that I've always wanted to do back from when I worked at that, that boutique consulting firm, it, the beginning of my career, I always wanted to have my own firm. I always wanted to hang my own shingle, as you said, and as scary as it was to do it in the middle of a pandemic, it just seemed like it was the right time and um, to take a leap of faith and, you know, bet on myself um was was daunting but i'm so glad that i that i did oh yeah uh well you like you said you bet on yourself you had the courage to make that change uh it's scary but uh sounds like you're you're thriving even in these early days um what would you say are your your biggest current challenges you know it, it's interesting when i first started the business the current challenge was just growing the business and, and getting it off the ground. 
now I find myself in a place where I'm building a team. And one big challenge for me is to make sure that I don't fall back into any of the old habits that I had leading a team in the past. And I'd like to think, and I, and I think the team that I work with now would attest to this, that I, that I haven't, but that's not by dumb luck. That's by deliberate practice on a daily basis to keep myself in check, hold myself accountable, and to make sure that all the hard work that I've done and the changes that I've created for myself, that there's staying power there and that that, that continues to be you know, authentic for me. So that is probably the biggest challenge for me is growing the business to, to keep up with you know, the tremendous and fortunate demand that there has been for the work that we do and to maintain a high bar. And, and then for me to continue to innovate and grow as well, you know, grow myself. I, I don't think there's going to be any time in my life where I'll stop and go, well, I've arrived. I've figured it all out. I can stop, you know, working on myself, but I like that, that, that actually is what gets me up in the morning is opportunities to continue to get better. Um, but also how do I take that and continue to weave it into the work that I do? Cause that's the opportunity for everyone as a leader. Everybody has the opportunity to say there is, there is no arrival. You know, the, the journey is, is constant. And if we put it in the right framing, that can be exhilarating and full of optimism and hope, and it, it can create meaning in our lives. You know, we could say that, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but there's an opportunity for me to provide value for someone else. And mm -hmm. that excites me. And so what kind of advice would you give to my 20 year old daughter or other young people who are just starting out and, and have uh, all of those transformative moments ahead of them? You know, if I look back at my career and, and frame it in the form of a regret and, and Dan, Dan Pink, Daniel Pink just wrote a book called the power of regret. That's phenomenal. Um, and it's all about reframing regret because we live in a culture that, you know, says no regrets. I don't want to have any regrets. And yet regrets are a tremendous learning opportunity. I mean, that's really what they are is that if we, if we allow ourselves to acknowledge the regret, it can teach us something. And my regrets throughout my career have been the times that I didn't trust myself, that uh, instead of trusting myself, I trusted the advice of someone else, or I just trusted looking what other people are doing and say, well, I should do what they're doing because that's what, you know, the people I respect are doing or the people that I like, or I want to be included by this, this group of people. So I'll do just as they do. And the times I didn't trust myself are probably the times that I found myself getting in the most trouble. And it's very hard to do because it's um, there's a lot of noise to signal ratio. There are a lot of noise in the signal, I should say. So my advice to my 20 year old self or, or, or your daughter for that matter would be to trust yourself. If something feels right, go with it, go all in. If something doesn't, there's a, there's something there. There's value in that. And to trust that there's a reason why, you know, the, the red light is flashing or there's discomfort. And that doesn't mean to just jump ship or give up on things, but um, to trust our own intuition of what feels right and what doesn't. And I think that gets us closer to living with integrity and doing the things that are right for us, as opposed to doing the things that we think are right for others. I love that. I can't wait for my daughter to listen to this. That's just great advice. <laughs> so uh, Massimo, let me, let me end with these five quick hit questions. Uh, just a wonderful story that I know is going to continue, but uh, 
uh, and you've referenced a few different people um, and a lot of people that have influenced you, but name a leader that you look up to. It's a great question, Paul. I don't know that people would look at this person as a leader per se, but it is that uh, they are somebody that I admire greatly. And it's Viktor Frankl who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. Um, and for those of that don't know his story, he was a social psychologist, an Austrian and a Jew, and he was taken into concentration camps and taken away from his family and the most horrific circumstances you could ever imagine anybody being put in. And he used his time in the concentration camps to study people and to study humanity and to recognize that we have choice, even in the most horrific circumstances. And that was the basis for his work and his um, psychological model of uh, logotherapy. And I think about his statement that between stimulus and response is our freedom to choose. And that is true for all of us every day. And by no means am I living in any type of circumstances that, that Victor Franca lived in. Uh, but we still have challenging days and we still have challenging decisions to make and relationships and to recognize that every moment in every relationship, there is an opportunity to choose how we respond. And I think that that's a timeless lesson. Um, and it comes from somebody that I admire deeply. Well, yeah, uh, I'm with you. That it's an incredible man and, and his work and that book. Um, and this this whole idea between stimulus and response, there's a space. And yeah. uh, I mean, I literally can see that book over on my bookshelf right now. And incredible. Um, so this may be the same answer for my next question, which was a, a book that influenced your leadership style. Is there another book? Um, you mentioned Daniel Pink's. Anybody else that comes to mind? Well, Kristen Neff's book on self-compassion has been um, really just instrumental for me. But another book that came out more recently that I just think is phenomenal is Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart. And it's basically a taxonomy of our emotions. And when I think about the basis of the work that I do, it's about helping people increase their emotional fluency to get away from, you know, good, bad, happy, sad, this kind of very small set of emotions that we use or the words we use to describe how we're feeling, but to recognize that a part of the human experience is that we have this wide array of emotional experiences and that it is that emotional experience that informs our ability to choose between stimulus and response. There is an emotion and being able to understand what that emotion is and what it's telling us helps us navigate that choice. And her book, um, outlines all of these different emotional, emotional kind of constructs and organizes them in different ways and explains them in, in great detail, but also um, in great simplicity that I just find it a really helpful resource to help increase emotional fluency and understand what is it that we're experiencing in each moment? I mean, so much of this is like, how do we increase the fidelity of what our lived experience is so that we can be more mindful um, with how we live. Mm. Incredible. Uh, all right. So my final three are a little less deep, but, uh, what's your all time favorite movie? Oh my gosh. I just watched a part of it this weekend. I think it's inception, uh, by Christopher Nolan. Mm -hmm. And, 
it's timeless. I was just watching it this weekend and my wife came in the room. She was like, this, it's just holds up over time. I don't know how long ago it came out, maybe 12, 15 years ago or something, but it's incredible. And just the idea of, you know, dreams and what happens in dreams and um, what we can create in our dreams is just uh, something that I think is endlessly fascinating. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. And how about a favorite TV series to binge watch? Oh my gosh, Paul, that's a good one. That's a, you know, I loved Game of Thrones. I thought Breaking Bad was phenomenal. I'd say right now, currently, Ted Lasso is something that I just, <laughs> I think yeah. is, I, I wish there were more shows like that. It, it, you know, it's smart, it's kind, it's thoughtful, it's, it, it it's unique. And I can't wait for the, you know, the next season to come out. My hope is that they, they end, you know, at the right time and, you know, they keep the story true to what what they planned originally and that it doesn't you know become some seven seven season run uh and and fall flat at some point yeah it's uh really puts a smile on your face and (laughs) lastly uh what's something about you that many people don't know well you said it at the at the top of this interview but um that uh that i'm an award-winning uh documentarian and i say that with a giant you know self-deprecating grin on my face because I think it's it's uh it's a silly accolade to have but uh my father donated his kidney to a dear friend of his and I documented that that entire journey that story on film and um created a short documentary film out of it and it it was able to raise several hundred thousand dollars in in research and advocacy for organ donation and when it came out, it really was kind of a, a zeitgeist in, in the moment within the organ donation community and within filmmaking. And it um, inspired several other documentaries to be made as well. So it's um, it was a, an interesting stop on my you know circuitous journey within my career, but something that I'm really proud of and look back on and, and, and just really delighted with the impact that it that it had and that it still has today. Well, it's been great to hear your story, Massimo, and you have a lot to be proud of. Uh, If you'll allow me, I want to take a minute just to reflect on some of the things I learned today and uh, just even your approach to the way you work with clients and showing your own vulnerability and your own story to earn their trust. I mean, we all can learn from that in terms of how we build relationships with uh, not only our clients, but people we work with and our families. Uh, a lot of it may have come out of your early lesson you learned um, through your challenge with dyslexia, uh, affected your confidence and self-esteem at that time, but really motivated you, challenged you to succeed, at the same time put a bit of a, a chip on your shoulder. And uh, um, But where you are today is that you you feel like you are living your purpose, and that's just a beautiful thing. I mean, that's that's the ultimate that we all want to get to. Uh, but you were honest that there were a lot of... Uh, roadblocks, challenges, uh, false starts along the way, uh, and and that that part of self discovery really never goes away. So you know, from dropping out of college, uh, getting that first job um, that your parents said you needed to get to, uh, if you didn't want to go back to school, and found out, wow, I'm good at sales. I I'm good at building relationships, uh, and ultimately going back to school, digging into this area of psychology and getting your master's uh, in organizational psychology and 
and also able to bridge this gap between academia and the practitioner side of business, which is always a push pull. But it just feels like that you've you've figured out how to do that through this idea of storytelling and developing trust in the people that you you work with, and your own transformation um, from that kind of moment of failure when you got that very uh, important feedback from a team that you led, an internal team, uh, and and was uh, probably quite enlightening at a time when you you weren't aware of how you were treating other people, how they felt about it. That's why feedback is so important in creating the opportunity for people to tell us how they feel about how uh, our relationship is with them. Uh, but rather than be defensive about that, you said, okay, and I, I'm going to jump in and do and see what I needed to learn about myself and improve. And you went through this Hoffman process uh, where it helped you align your past with how you are today, uh, you learned about self-compassion. And I know that now you're 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 writing a book about self-compassion and leadership. And I, I can't wait for that to come out. Um, but you you learn the difference between self-compassion and self-protection, which is really the umbrella that you had been living under all these years. Uh, so I, I love this idea of self-compassion, the, the three components of common humanity, mindful awareness, self-kindness, uh, things that that all of us can learn from and live by every day. Uh, I just feel like if we had a psychologist's couch right now, I'd want to lie on it and let you start to evaluate me. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, and we'll, we'll go, we could go really deep. I'm sure there's a lot to learn. Um, but you know, you've also had courage to to learn more about yourself, to grow yourself, to uh, go out on your own in the middle of a pandemic, um, and and uh, so there's just no doubt that your story will continue to grow, but that the number of people that you impact will continue to grow, and uh, uh, and and I look forward to that impact that you have on on people going forward in your own practice as you build your own team. And uh, and how you gave advice to to not just my daughter, but young people that are um, growing up, getting into their careers or school or business, that we have to spend a little bit less time thinking about what others are doing or what others think of what we're doing and trust ourselves, trust our gut and um, and know that that that's generally the right path to be on. So. Uh, wonderful uh, time chatting with you, Massimo. I look forward to doing it more. I know that those listening to this uh, will as well. And I so much appreciate you being on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Paul. It was a real pleasure. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about purpose-driven leadership, go to smallgiants.org or follow us on Twitter at Small Giants Buzz. Until next time.